I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. One in five people lives with a disability. No, that's not right. One in five people live with a disability? Yeah, okay, let's start that over. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. One in five people lives with a disability. Some disabilities are congenital, but most occur later in life. Despite this prevalence of disability, there is often a peculiar absence of disability from family narratives. Not only have people with disabilities been vanished into institutions, for example, but there is a telling silence about them in family histories as well. Now, parents may not care if it's a boy or a girl, but they do unfailingly wish for a healthy child. The happy family, then, is by default conceived of as a family without disability. But everyone has disabled relatives. Sometimes they're hiding in plain sight. So it's worth pondering what is gained if we embrace disability ancestry. Today, we discuss disability lineage. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse on AMI Audio. I'm Joita Gupta. My guest today is Jennifer Natalia Fink, Professor of English and Director of the Disability Studies Program at Georgetown University. She joins me to discuss her new book, All Our Families, Disability Lineage and the Future of Kinship. Hello and welcome to the program. It's really nice to have you with us today. I'm so happy to be here. What got you thinking about your disability lineage and your disability ancestors? I think it was my daughter's diagnosis when she was two and a half um, that I experienced as very traumatic and delineating, if you will, kind of disconnecting us from the family narrative. And that got me thinking about, well, what is the story of our family and disability? And I realized that our whole sense of family was ghosted in a way by the absent presence of a person I call my cousin XY, because I never got to know what his name is, who was given away at birth by my aunt and uncle because he had Down syndrome. And this is in the 70s. This is no longer the norm. But that story really shaped how I thought about disability and family. And though it's sort of a dramatic and extreme version, the silence around disability and the trauma around it got me thinking about how family myths fail to account for disability. And when they do, they do it in a very pathological way and how this perpetuates ableism, valuing some bodies and minds and not others. And when people do experience disability in the family, it's always experienced as a one-off traumatic individual event and not something that is as widespread as we know it to be. What does your investigation reveal about conceptions of the family itself? Yeah, um, I think it's not only that disability is ubiquitous yet represented as this individual trauma to a family, it's also not understood as an identity. So when a family gets a diagnosis, right, and most disabilities are acquired, not innate, so can happen at any point, nobody says, find your people, 
become part of a community, right? There's a, and there's no mention of disability gain, of positive dimensions of having a disability, right? So you're sort of in this vacuum as a family, it's this individual problem your family has to solve. And there's all this shame and stigma around having a disabled family member. I say provocatively in the book that the very notion of family, this construct of family defines itself against disability. And I start thinking about how we could change that. And, you know, in the book, there's this really moving passage where you talk about the autumn day when you get your daughter's diagnosis and how differently you might have experienced that moment or that diagnosis if you'd had the the disability lineage or the ancestry to lean on as a parent. There's so much uh, that can be said about parents. And I want to sort of preface my remark there by saying that we we can both acknowledge that parents have often taken up a lot of space when it comes to the conversations about disability. But nonetheless, yeah. there's a lot of emphasis put on parenting children with disabilities, the guilt that parents might harbor, the, uh, the, the steps that parents might take to try and minimize harm to their children. What did your exploration in the book um, make you consider differently about parents with disabilities and parenting with disabilities? Well, I think there, there are a bunch of pieces to that. I want to go back to that autumn day diagnosis day, right? And nothing had changed about my child, right? She was the same joyful, fun, quirky, complex kid that I've been parenting all along, right? But I felt delineated, I felt traumatized. And I I think that feeling came from this cultural and familial narrative. No clinician said, find your people. No clinician said there are positive aspects of how there's disability gain, there are things to be learned. So I think the assumption is that it's traumatic to be avoided, rare. Disabled people are the largest minority group in the world. If we live so long, we will be disabled. And the sense of family, you know, in part because of all this fear around a certain narrative of genetics and inheritance is defined as staving off disability. That's the family's job, right? Rather than integrating, lineating, and feeling connected to the disabled people uh, who came before us, which in every family, there were disabled people before that disabled child gets that diagnosis. So feeling this as a normal part of one's family history and ancestry, I think would radically transform the experience of having a disabled family member and allow us to engage disability without stigma or shame and without ableism. Let's talk a little bit about genetics and also about abortion. Now, I don't mind telling you that I'm very pro-choice, but I've had to wrestle with the fact that the abortion movement and the pro-choice movement hasn't really talked about how ableism might structure those choices. With that said, I mean, when we have conversations about abortions and more recent debates about genetic testing, for example, most parents will say, I don't care if it's a boy or a girl, you know, that's pretty run of the mill, but they'll also say, but I really hope it's a healthy child. Right. So how do we how do we address the benefits? So how do we reconcile the benefits of things like genetic testing and the availability of things like genetic testing and the right of a woman to choose with this notion that a disabled life is nonetheless worth living, even if families may shrink from 
from disability and in their narrative or in looking back in, the, in their own ancestry. So how do you reconcile those two seemingly in, irreconcilable positions? Right. I don't think they're irreconcilable. I, too, am pro-choice and even, you know, I'm comfortable with people making choices that I would not make, right? That, that That's part of it. But choices always happen in a context. And I think the word you're using, shirking from the disability lineage in the family, well, that has to end. We have to stop shirking and, and own our disability lineage with pride and joy. And also understand that a particular diagnosis does not give you the information you think it does about what a particular individual's life is going to look like. The greatest example of this is Down syndrome where we now can do selective abortions, right? We can test ahead of time to know whether a fetus has an extra chromosome or not. And in many cases, women feel this determines what the outcome of that life is going to be, right? But it doesn't. We, first of all, don't know the outcome of any life, any child. But in the case of Down syndrome, In the age of institutionalization, most people with Down syndrome did not make it to age 30 Mm -hmm. and didn't work, didn't go to college, uh, didn't participate fully in society because they were institutionalized. Mm Since deinstitutionalization, which began in earnest in the US and Canada in the 80s, life outcomes have radically changed including what would seem like objective biological markers, like lifespan without any new treatments. Mm. People with Down syndrome now live only slightly less, about 10 years less than uh, people without Down syndrome. They live into their 60s and 70s typically. They participate in the workforce at almost the same rates. They almost all finish high school, many go to college. So the outcomes have changed radically, not due to any medication or treatment, due to social integration and family integration, okay? So I think it's a little misleading that the genetic narrative is so often shaped by ableism and family delineation. And this word health is kind of a meaningless one, I think. If your infant gets sick, are you gonna toss them back? Like, what's the plan here? All infants are incredibly needy, they all get sick, And we don't know the outcome of any individual is the truth. So I think a lot of it is about a kind of dishonesty around care and it's incredibly raced and gendered dimensions and fears around, particularly for women, of being saddled with care work, right? That, that's the underlying fear. So A, I think that the, it doesn't matter whether it's a boy or girl, it completely matters. Women are doing almost 100% of the care work. So it absolutely matters. And that anxiety around gender and care has been displaced onto what are perceived as the expendable bodies and minds of disabled people. So I think one can be absolutely pro-choice. And I'm even very pro-science, very pro-research. I, you know, to know new things and develop new technologies, I'm all for it. How they're used depends on who's making the decisions and in what context. So people like Rosemary Garland Thompson talk a lot about disabled people need to be at the center of these conversations. Disabled scientists need to be at the center of these conversations. The lives of disabled people need to be at the center. They need to not be these objects upon who our fears and anxieties are projected.
that would change how we conceptualize, uh, if you will, how we use these tools, how we make choices about the lives we begin and end. Um, so one can be a hundred, there's, there's really not a contradiction in my view between being hundred percent pro-choice, which I am, and challenging some of the underlying profoundly genocidal and ableist ideas um, that shape how those choices are made and by whom. Jennifer, I'd like to give authors a chance to read a little bit from their book. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you've chosen to read today and uh, take it away. Great, thank you. So I'm gonna read from the begin at the begin, begin at the begin and read uh, just the first few passages of the book and then a little bit that frames some of the fundamental questions and challenges. I'm seven. I'm walking through room after room in my grandparents' cavernous Long Island house, looking for my cousin. Cousin, cousin, I call, wishing I knew his name. Cousin XY, I call. I know he's a boy and I'm a geneticist's daughter. Chromosomes count. Cousin XY visits me in dreams. He has his father's eyes. My cousin XY was born in 1972 with Down syndrome and immediately abandoned. He was listed only as baby XY. I always knew my aunt and uncle had quote, given away their son at birth. His very existence was explained to me as a tragedy, a crisis, an aberration that perhaps science could one day prevent. In the hospital on the day he was born, his mother refused to look at his face, take him away. So the story went. His, my grandfather, a family doctor, the family medical expert was firm. Give him up, you can start over. You have a right to real children. He will be happier there. Where was there? I often wondered where my cousin was, who he was. Silence and two other children quickly replaced him in the family narrative. On the rare occasions when his existence came up, Everyone gave them away was repeated as a gospel truth. And indeed in the 1970s, institutionalization, abandonment and excision from the family narrative was still too often the fate of those labeled incurable at birth. But I discovered that wasn't the whole truth. As with most families, the story of my family's disability lineage had far more strands than I realized. And I go on to tell you a little bit about that. Let me ask you a little bit about that, because in addition to cousin XY, you discover another relative who is removed mm -hmm. by half a generation, but you do not find out about Rona until after she's dead and you discover from other relatives about her life and her legacy. Tell us a little bit about this other cousin who lived in Scotland and what you learned about the ways in which families can embrace uh, people with disabilities in ways that um, go beyond simple banishment from the family, you know, the physical space, but also just from people's memory and recollections. Yes, yeah, so um, we had this extended family in Scotland who we'd visited during my childhood. And my grandfather was quite close with one of his cousins there. It turned out there was another cousin who none of us knew about, who was who the family didn't tell us about, named Rona, which means joy in Hebrew. And 
her mother and sister started a care home that was cutting edge. She was raised in her family, fully integrated until she was an adult. And then her mother and sister founded Cosgrove Care, which is a care facility that for Jewish people because they don't have separation of church and state in Scotland so that she could live a Jewish life. But this was hidden away from, from our family. And my grandfather's knowledge of Rona shaped to some degree his pressuring of my aunt and uncle to abandon their child. So uh, it's a very complex interweaving. And I think for me to know that there was a whole other person just who had such a better outcome in so many ways, was so much more integrated into the family and loved and cherished, to to know that was denied me, that that knowledge was denied me completely, that all I had was this horrible traumatic narrative about one cousin when there was a whole other human who I never got to meet, That really made me feel how deeply the ableism that delineates families really goes, that there are whole people in your family you don't know about. So I, and and that they can be recovered. That's the other piece of this. It takes only a little bit of work to disinter those stories. Sometimes it's a matter of retelling them, finding out different dimensions of them. And sometimes if you literally find there are whole people you didn't know about in your ancestry, in your lineage. And I do have tips at the back of the book, very practical for how you can find your disability lineage and why it's important to, why it matters. Even if you don't have a disabled person in your family, we will all be disabled if we live so long, 100% of us. So I I think Rona was key to kind of transforming how I thought about this family myth that had been passed down to me. There was a whole other piece of it. Another thing I want to say is that there, there are two facets really to reclaiming disability lineage. One is finding these people who were, you know, cut out of the story right? Or you only have fragments of the story and they're all pathologized, right? That's one piece. The other piece that I talk about towards the end of the book is there are people right in front of you in your life who you don't think of disabled, who uh, as disabled who are. Mm-hmm. And I talk about my grandmother, Adina's deafness and my mother's hard of hearing and how it was almost forbidden to think of this as disability, right? And what reclaiming the family members you do know who are integrated into your family, who have disabilities, often mental disabilities or invisible disabilities, what's at stake in naming and claiming them as such? Earlier in our conversation, we were talking about care work. And one of the interesting uh, tidbits about Rona's story is in an interview that you had with her primary caregiver, Kathy, Kathy mentioned that her mother and sister would often come to visit, but that she couldn't recognize Rona's father or brother in the street if, you know, if she happened to run into them. No, it's do you know him on the street? Yes, she's <laughs> in, in her Scottish brogue, yes. <laughs> and it's such a telling example of how care work is gendered. And so yes. how do we have a broader conversation about care work? 
so that we can recognize that care work is performed by women, often racialized women who are underpaid. How do we weave all of those strands together uh, through a disability justice framework? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to know the story in your own family. It's one of those things, you know, it's in the news, there's statistics, but reclaim the care lineage in your family, both informal uh, and uncompensated by women in your own family. Once you, you know, uncover the disability lineage, it's like, well, who was taking care of these people, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it. And then looking structurally at the way it's organized in our society, if we keep pretending that disability is this thing that happens to other people in those bad families, right? Or those pitied families and not our own, we can keep ignoring the truly racist and misogynistic ways that care is organized. We don't value care because we don't value the people who are being cared for, right? Um, so I think these are really connected actually to our disability lineage because the facts are out there. This has been reported a bazillion times. Um, but we're not of a mind to reorganize care because we can't even admit that we need it. Especially now during the pandemic, there's been a, an upsurge in mutual aid groups. Uh, even before that, if you think about the Occupy movement, very grassroots. Do you think that mutual aid groups um, and the quote unquote chosen family that many people lean on can be a suitable replacement for the more traditional care work performed by families and women, especially for people with disabilities? You know, it's a really complex question that I take on. By family, I don't mean nuclear family. That's one of the things, it's, it's been interesting talking to people about this. Uh, I'm really interested in an extended family lineage for one thing, when we talk about our disability lineage. And then so often, you know, as a queer person, I know there was this idea that the family, meaning a white heterosexual nuclear family was just intrinsically homophobic and we had no right to really ask for much from them. Like it was just presumed that we would be delineated as queer people in the 20th century, right? And then there was going to be this magical family of choice that was going to be there for us and meet all our needs and have none of the problems of the nuclear family. Oh no, of family of origin. No, no, no. And it didn't really pan out that way. I think everybody has a right, a right to their family of origin, caring for them, integrating them, valuing them. And then mutual aid and this extended kinship system, it already exists in many communities. And I look particularly at black and indigenous communities in the US um, that have complex, highly functional extended kinship systems, right? And I think there's a lot to learn from that. I think the problem with mutual aid has something to do with, you know, this idea that we can in this very sort of smallest, beautiful, small scale way, meet each other's needs, um, it tends to be only people who are young. Mm -hmm. It tends to be very childless and elderless, these mutual aid groups. They're not really equipped for non-reciprocal, high needs care for children, small children with disabilities, elders, almost 100% of whom end up disabled if they live so long, right? So I think it, it actually has a kind of libertarian up by your bootstraps dimension in like the oddest places. Um, so I think we need a more systemic solution, right? Mm -hmm. And I also think we need to demand the right to, 
to our families of origin, whether they're adoptive, right? They're not necessarily biological, but we all came from a family. And I think we have a right to then actually the adoption, the open adoption movement has been sort of a leader on this. We have a right to know things about ourselves deeply rooted in our ancestry. And I found that a lot of disability justice rhetoric was about sort of there's this ancestral plane, this mythic plane where you can claim a disability ancestry. And that's fine, but I think you actually just need to have a sense of disabled people in your literal ancestry and you have a right to that. And we won't really change the structure of family ableism until we do that. Otherwise we're just passing down this incredibly toxic ableist legacy from our families and we need to stop doing that. Well, Jennifer, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. There was so much more we could have talked about in your book. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Jennifer Natalia Fink is Professor of English and Director of the Disability Studies Program at Georgetown University. That's all the time we have today. Thanks a lot for listening. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you.